Dragons of Winter Night, Dragonlance, Chronicles Book 2. Written by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Narrated by Paul Bamer. The winter winds raged outside. But within the caverns of the mountain dwarves beneath the Carolus Mountains, the fury of the storm was not felt. As the thane called for silence among the assembled dwarves and humans, a dwarven bard stepped forward to do homage to the companions. Song of the Nine Heroes From the north came danger as we knew it would. In the vanguard of winter, a dragon's dance unraveled the land. Until out of the forest, out of the plains they came from the mothering earth. The sky, unreckoned before them, nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight, as the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. One from a garden of stone arising, from dwarf halls, from weather and wisdom, where the heart and mind ride unquestioned, in the untapped vein of the hand, in his fathering arms, the spirit gathered. Nine they were under the three moons, under the autumn twilight, as the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. One, from a haven of breezes descending, light in the handling air, to the waving meadows, the Kender's country, where the grain out of smallness arises itself to grow green and golden and green again. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight. As the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. The next, from the plains, the long lands keeping, Nurtured in distance, horizons of nothing, bearing a staff she came, and a burden of mercy and light converged in her hand, bearing the wounds of the world, she came. Nine they were under the three moons, under the autumn twilight, as the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. The next, from the plains in the moon's shadow, through custom, through ritual trailing the moon, where her phases, her wax and her wane, controlled the tide of his blood, and his warrior's hand ascended through hierarchies of space into light. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight, as the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. One within absences known by departures, the dark swordswoman at the heart of the fire, her glories, the space between words, the cradle-song recollected in age, recalled at the edge of awakening and thought. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight. As the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. One, in the heart of honor, formed by the sword, by the centuries' flight of the kingfisher over the land, by Solamnia ruined and risen, rising again when the heart ascends into duty. As it dances, the sword is forever an heirloom. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight, 
As the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. The next, in simple light, a brother to darkness, letting the sword-hand try all subtleties, even the intricate webs of the heart. His thoughts are pools disrupted in changing wind. He cannot see their bottom. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight. As the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. The next, the leader, half-elven, betrayed, as the twining blood pulls asunder the land, the forests, the worlds of elves and men, called into bravery, but fearing for love, and fearing that, called into both, he does nothing. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight. As the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. The last, from the darkness, breathing the night, where the abstract stars hide a nest of words, where the body endures the wound of numbers, surrendered to knowledge, until, unable to bless, his blessing falls on the low and benighted. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight. As the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. Joined by others, they were in the telling. A graceless girl, graced beyond graces. A princess of seeds and saplings, called to the forest. An ancient weaver of accidents. Nor can we say who the story will gather. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight. As the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. From the north came danger as we knew it would. In encampments of winter the dragon's sleep has settled the land. But out of the forest, out of the plains they come from the mothering earth, defining the sky before them. Nine they were, under the three moons, under the autumn twilight. As the world declined, they arose into the heart of the story. The Hammer The Hammer of Karas The great hall of audience of the King of the Mountain Dwarves echoed with the triumphal announcement. It was followed by wild cheering, the deep, booming voices of the dwarves mingling with the slightly higher-pitched shouts of the humans as the huge doors at the rear of the hall were thrown open, and Elistan, cleric of Paladine, entered. Although the bowl-shaped hall was large, even by dwarven standards, it was crammed to capacity. Nearly all of the eight hundred refugees from Pax Tharkas lined the walls, while the dwarves packed into the carved stone benches below. Elistan appeared at the foot of a long central aisle, the giant warhammer held reverently in his hands. The shouts increased at the sight of the cleric of Paladin in his white robes, the sound booming against the great vault of the ceiling, and reverberating through the hall until it seemed that the ground shook with the vibrations. Tanis winced as the noise made his head throb. He was stifled in the crowd. 
He didn't like being underground anyway, and although the ceiling was so high that the top soared beyond the blazing torchlight and disappeared into shadow, the half-elf felt enclosed. Trapped. I'll be glad when this is over. He muttered to Sturm, standing next to him. Sturm, always melancholy, seemed even darker and more brooding than usual. I don't approve of this, Tannis, he muttered, folding his arms across the bright metal of his antique breastplate. I know, said Tannis irritably. You've said it, not once, but several times. It's too late now. There's nothing to be done but make the best of it. The end of his sentence was lost in another resounding cheer as Elistan raised the hammer above his head, showing it to the crowd before beginning the walk down the aisle. Tannis put his hand on his forehead. He was growing dizzy as the cool underground cavern heated up from the mass of bodies. Elistan started to walk down the aisle, Rising to greet him on the dais in the center of the hall was Hornfell, thane of the Hylar dwarves. Spaced behind the dwarf were seven carved stone thrones, all of them now empty. Hornfell stood before the seventh throne, the most magnificent, the throne for the king of Thorbarden. Long empty, it would be occupied once more as Hornfell accepted the hammer of Karas. The return of this ancient relic was a singular triumph for Hornfell. Since his thanedom was now in possession of the coveted hammer, he could unite the rival dwarven thanes under his leadership. We fought to recover that hammer, Sturm said slowly, his eyes upon the gleaming weapon, the legendary hammer of Karas. Used to forge the dragon lances. Lost for hundreds of years, found again and lost once more, and now given to the dwarves. He said in disgust. It was given to the dwarves once before. Tannis reminded him wearily, feeling sweat trickle down his forehead. Have Flint tell you the tale if you've forgotten. At any rate, it is truly theirs now. Elistan had arrived at the foot of the stone dais where the thane, dressed in their heavy robes and massive gold chains dwarves loved, awaited him. Elistan knelt at the foot of the dais, a politic gesture, for otherwise the tall, muscular cleric would stand face to face with the dwarf, despite the fact that the dais was a good three feet off the ground. The dwarves cheered mightily at this. The humans were, Tannis noticed, more subdued, some muttering among themselves, not liking the sight of their leader abasing himself. Accept this gift of our people! Elistan's words were lost in another cheer from the dwarves. Gift! Sturm snorted. Ransom is nearer the mark. In return for which, Elistan continued when he could be heard, we thank the dwarves for their generous gift of a place to live within their kingdom. For the right to be sealed in a tomb, Sturm muttered. And we pledge our support to the dwarves if the war should come upon us, Elistan shouted. 
cheering resounded throughout the chamber, increasing as Thane Hornfell bent to receive the hammer. The dwarves stamped and whistled, most climbing up on the stone benches. Tannis began to feel nauseated. He glanced around. They would never be missed. Hornfell would speak. So would each of the other six thanes, not to mention the members of the High Seekers' Council. The half-elf touched Sturm on the arm, motioning to the knight to follow him. The two walked silently from the hall, bending low to get through a narrow archway. Although still underground in the massive dwarven city, at least they were away from the noise, out in the cool night air. Are you all right? Sturm asked, noticing Tannis's pallor beneath his beard. The half-elf gulped drafts of cool air. I am now, Tannis said, flushing in shame at his weakness. It was the heat. And the noise? Well, we'll be out of here soon, Sturm said, depending, of course, on whether or not the Council of High Seekers votes to let us go to Tarsus. There's no doubt how they'll vote, Tannis said, shrugging. Elistan is clearly in control now that he's led the people to a place of safety. None of the High Seekers dares oppose him, at least to his face. No, my friend, within a month's time, perhaps, we'll be setting sail in one of the white-winged ships of Tarsus the Beautiful. Without the hammer of Karas, Sturm added bitterly. Softly he began to quote. And so it was told that the knights took the golden hammer, the hammer blessed by the great god Paladin and given to the one of the silver arm, so that he might forge the dragon lance of Huma, Dragonbane, and gave the hammer to the dwarf they called Karas, or knight, for his extraordinary valor and honor in battle. And he kept Karas for his name, and the hammer of Karas passed into the dwarven kingdom with assurances from the dwarves that it should be brought forth again at need. It has been brought forth, Tannis said, struggling to contain his rising anger. He had heard that quotation entirely too many times. It has been brought forth and will be left behind. Sturm bit the words. We might have taken it to Salamnia, used it to forge our own dragon lances. And you would be another humor, riding to glory, the dragon lance in your hand. Tannis's control snapped. Meanwhile, you'd let eight hundred people die. No, I would not have let them die, Sturm shouted in a towering rage. The first clue we have to the dragon lances, and you sell it for... Both men stopped arguing abruptly, suddenly aware of a shadow creeping from the darker shadows surrounding them. Shirak, whispered a voice, and a bright light flared, gleaming from a crystal ball clutched in the golden, disembodied claw of a dragon atop a plain wooden staff. The light illuminated the red robes of a magic user. The young mage walked toward the two, leaning upon his staff, coughing slightly. The light from his staff shone upon a skeletal face with 
glistening metallic gold skin drawn tightly over fine bones. His eyes gleamed golden. Raceland, said Tannis, his voice tight. Is there something you want? Raceland did not seem at all bothered by the angry looks both men cast him, apparently well accustomed to the fact that few felt comfortable in his presence, or wanted him around. He stopped before the two. Stretching forth his frail hand, the mage spoke. Akularalan, Sudagolan, Jistrathar. And a pale image of a weapon shimmered into being as Tanis and Sturm watched in astonishment. It was a footman's lance, nearly twelve feet long. The point was made of pure silver, barbed and gleaming. The shaft, crafted of polished wood, the tip was steel, designed to be thrust into the ground. It's beautiful, Tanis gasped. What is it? A dragon lance, Raceland answered. Holding the lance in his hand, the mage stepped between the two, who stood aside to let him pass as if unwilling to be touched by him. Their eyes were on the lance. Then Raceland turned and held it out to Sturm. There is your dragon lance, knight, Raceland hissed, without benefit of the hammer or the silver arm. Will you ride with it into glory, remembering that, for humor, with glory came death? Stern's eyes flashed. He caught his breath in awe as he reached out to take hold of the dragonlance. To his amazement, his hand passed right through it. The dragonlance vanished even as he touched it. More of your tricks, he snarled, spinning on his heel. He stalked away, choking in anger. If you meant that as a joke, Raceland, Tannis said quietly. It wasn't funny. A joke, the mage whispered. His strange, golden eyes followed the night as Sturm walked into the thick blackness of the dwarven city beneath the mountain. You should know me better, Tannis. The mage laughed, the weird laughter Tannis had heard only once before, then bowing sardonically to the half-elf. Raceland disappeared, following the night, into the shadows. Book One Chapter One White-Winged Ships Hope lies across the plains of dust. Tannis Half-Elven sat in the meeting of the Council of High Seekers and listened, frowning. Though officially the false religion of the Seekers was now dead, the group that made up the political leadership of the 800 refugees from Pax Tharkas was still called that. It isn't that we're not grateful to the dwarves for allowing us to live here, stated Hedrick expansively, waving his scarred hand. We are all grateful, I'm certain, just as we're grateful to those whose heroism in recovering the Hammer of Karas made our move here possible. 
Hedrick bowed to Tannis, who returned the bow with a brief nod of his head. But we are not dwarves. This emphatic statement brought murmurs of approval, causing Hedrick to warm to his audience. We humans were never meant to live underground. Loud calls of approval and some clapping of hands. We are farmers. We cannot grow food on the side of a mountain. We want lands like the ones we were forced to leave behind. And I say that those who forced us to leave our old homeland should provide us with new. Does he mean the dragon high lords? Sturm whispered sarcastically to Tannis. I'm certain they'd be happy to oblige. The fools ought to be thankful they're alive, Tannis muttered. Look at them, turning to Elistan, as if it were his doing. The cleric of Paladin, the leader of the refugees, rose to his feet to answer Hedrick. It is because we need new homes, Elistan said, his strong baritone resounding through the cavern that I propose we send a delegation south to the city of Tarsus the Beautiful. Tannis had heard Elastan's plan before. His mind wandered over the month since he and his companions had returned from Durkin's tomb with the sacred hammer. The dwarven thanes, now consolidated under the leadership of Hornfell, were preparing to battle the evil coming from the north. The dwarves did not greatly fear this evil. Their mountain kingdoms seemed impregnable. And they had kept the promise they made Tanis in return for the hammer. The refugees from Pax Tharkas could settle in Southgate, the southernmost part of the mountain kingdom of Torbarden. Elistan brought the refugees to Torbarden. They began trying to rebuild their lives, but the arrangement was not totally satisfactory. They were safe, to be sure. But the refugees, mostly farmers, were not happy living underground in the huge dwarven caverns. In the spring they could plant crops on the mountainside, but the rocky soil would produce only a bare living. The people wanted to live in the sunshine and fresh air. They did not want to be dependent on the dwarves. It was Elistan who recalled the ancient legends of Tarsus the Beautiful, and its gull-winged ships. But that's all they were. Legends, as Tanis had pointed out when Elistan first mentioned his idea. No one on this part of Anselin had heard anything about the city of Tarsus since the Cataclysm three hundred years ago. At that time, the dwarves had closed off the mountain kingdom of Torbarden, effectively shutting off all communication between the south and north since the only way through the Carolus Mountains was through Torbarden. Tannis listened gloomily as the Council of High Seekers voted unanimously to approve Elistan's suggestion. They proposed sending a small group of people to Tarsus with instructions to find what ships came into port, where they were bound, and how much it would cost to book passage or even to buy a ship. And who's going to lead this group? Tannis asked himself silently, though he already knew the answer. All eyes now turned to him. Before Tannis could speak, Raistlin, who had been listening to all that was said without comment, walked forward to stand before the council. He stared around at them, 
his strange eyes glittering golden. You are fools, Raceland said, his whispering voice soft with scorn. And you are living in a fool's dream. How often must I repeat myself? How often must I remind you of the portent of the stars? What do you say to yourselves when you look into the night sky and see the gaping black holes where the two constellations are missing? The council members shifted in their seats, several exchanging long-suffering glances indicative of boredom. Raislin noticed this and continued, his voice growing more and more contemptuous. Yes, I have heard some of you say that it is nothing more than a natural phenomenon, a thing that happens, perhaps, like the falling of leaves from trees. Several council members muttered among themselves, nodding. Raislin watched silently for a moment, his lip curled in derision. Then he spoke once more. I repeat. You are fools. The constellation known as the Queen of Darkness is missing from the sky because the Queen is present here upon Kryn. The warrior constellation which represents the ancient god Paladin, as we are told in the discs of Mishikal, has also returned to Kryn to fight her. Raceland paused. Elistan, who stood among them, was a prophet of Paladin, and many here were converts to this new religion. He could sense the growing anger at what some considered his blasphemy. The idea that gods should become personally involved in the affairs of men, shocking! But being considered blasphemous had never bothered Raceland. His voice rose to a high pitch. Mark well my words! With the Queen of Darkness have come her shrieking hosts, as it says in the canticle, and the shrieking hosts are dragons. Raceland drew out the last word into a hiss that, as Flint said, shivered the skin. We know all this, Hedrick snapped in impatience. It was past time for the theocrat's nightly glass of mulled wine, and his thirst gave him courage to speak. He immediately regretted it, however, when Raceland's hourglass eyes seemed to pierce the theocrat like black arrows. Well, what are you driving at? That peace no longer exists anywhere on Kryn, the mage whispered. He waved a frail hand. Find ships. Travel where you will. Wherever you go, whenever you look up into the night sky, you will see those gaping black holes. Wherever you go, there will be dragons. Raceland began to cough. His body twisted with the spasms, and he seemed likely to fall. But his twin brother, Caraman, ran forward and caught him in his strong arms. After Caraman led the mage out of the council meeting, it seemed as if a dark cloud had been lifted. The council members shook themselves and laughed, if somewhat shakily, and talked of children's tales. To think that war had spread to all of Kryn was comic. Why, the war was near an end here in Ancelon already. The dragon high lord Verminard had been defeated, his draconian armies driven back. 
the council members stood and stretched and left the chamber to head for the alehouse, for their homes. They forgot they had never asked Tannis if he would lead the group to Tarsus. They simply assumed he would. Tannis, exchanging grim glances with Sturm, left the cavern. It was his night to stand watch, even though the dwarves might consider themselves safe in their mountain fortress. Tannis and Sturm insisted that a watch be kept upon the walls leading into Southgate. They had come to respect the Dragon High Lords too much to sleep in peace without it, even underground. Tannis leaned against the outer wall of Southgate, his face thoughtful and serious. Before him spread a meadow covered by smooth, powdery snow. The night was calm and still. Behind him was the great mass of the Carolus Mountains. The gate of Southgate was, in fact, a gigantic plug in the side of the mountains. It was part of the dwarven defenses that had kept the world out for three hundred years following the cataclysm and the destructive dwarven wars. Sixty feet wide at the base, and almost half again as high. The gate was operated by a huge mechanism that forced it in and out of the mountain, at least forty feet thick in its center. The gate was as indestructible as any known on Kryn, except for the one matching it in the north. Once shut, they could not be distinguished from the faces of the mountain. Such was the craftsmanship of the ancient dwarven masons. Yet, since the arrival of the humans at Southgate, torches had been set about the opening, allowing the men, women, and children access to the outside air. A human need that seemed an unaccountable weakness to the subterranean dwarves. As Tannis stood there, staring into the woods beyond the meadow and finding no peace in their quiet beauty, Sturm, Elastan, and Lorana joined him. The three had been talking, obviously of him, and fell into an uncomfortable silence. How solemn you are, Lorana said to Tannis softly, coming near and putting her hand on his arm. You believe Raislin is right, don't you, Tanthlet? Tannis. Lorana blushed. His human name still came clumsily to her lips, yet she knew him well enough now to understand that his elven name only brought him pain. Tannis looked down at the small, slender hand on his arm and gently put his own over it. Only a few months earlier the touch of that hand would have irritated him, causing confusion and guilt as he wrestled with love for a human woman against what he told himself was a childhood infatuation with this elf-maiden. But now the touch of Lorana's hand filled him with warmth and peace, even as it stirred his blood. He pondered these new, disturbing feelings as he responded to her question. I have long found Raceland's advice sound, he said, knowing how this would upset them. Sure enough, Sturm's face darkened. Elastan frowned. And I think he is right this time. We have won a battle, but we are a long way from winning the war. We know it is being fought far north, in Solamnia. I think we may safely assume that it is not for the conquest of Avenacinia alone that the forces of darkness are fighting. 
But you are only speculating, Elistan argued. Do not let the darkness that hangs around the young mage cloud your thinking. He may be right, but that is no reason to give up hope, to give up trying. Tarsus is a large seaport city, at least according to all we know of it. There we'll find those who can tell us if the war encompasses the world. If so, then surely there still must be havens where we can find peace. Listen to Elistan Tanis. Lorana said gently, He is wise. When our people left Gualanesti, they did not flee blindly. They traveled to a peaceful haven. My father had a plan, though he dared not reveal it. Lorana broke off, startled to see the effect of her speech. Abruptly, Tanis snatched his arm from her touch and turned his gaze on Elistan. His eyes filled with anger. Raceland says, Hope is the denial of reality. Tanis stated coldly. Then, seeing Elistan's careworn face regard him with sorrow, the half-elf smiled wearily. I apologize, Elistan. I am tired, that's all. Forgive me. Your suggestion is good. We'll travel to Tarsus with hope, if nothing else. Elistan nodded and turned to leave. Are you coming, Lorana? I know you are tired, my dear, but we have a great deal to do before I can turn the leadership over to the council in my absence. I'll be with you presently, Elistan, Lorana said, flushing. I... I want to speak a moment with Tanis. Elistan gave them both an appraising, understanding look then walked through the darkened gateway with Sturm. Tanis began dowsing the torches, preparatory to the closing of the gate. Lorana stood near the entrance, her expression growing cold as it became obvious. Tanis was ignoring her. What is the matter with you? she said finally. It almost sounds as if you are taking that dark-souled mage's part against Elistan, one of the best and wisest humans I have ever met. Don't judge Raceland, Lorana, Tanis said harshly, thrusting a torch into a bucket of water. The light vanished with a hiss. Things aren't always black and white, as you elves are inclined to believe. The mage has saved our lives more than once. I have come to rely upon his thinking, which I admit I find easier to rely on than blind faith. You elves! Lorana cried. How typically human that sounds. There is more elven in you than you care to admit, Tantalus. You used to say you didn't wear the beard to hide your heritage, and I believed you. But now I'm not so certain. I've lived around humans long enough to know how they feel about elves, but I'm proud of my heritage. You're not. You're ashamed of it. Why? Because of that human woman you're in love with. What's her name? Kitiara? Stop it, Lorana. Tanis shouted. Hurling down a torch to the ground, he strode to the elven maiden standing in the doorway. If you want to discuss relationships, what about you and Elistan? You may be a cleric of Paladine, but he's a man, a factor which you can no doubt testify. All I hear from you, he mimicked her voice, is, Elistan is so wise. Ask Elistan, he'll know what to do. Listen to Elistan, Tanis. 
How dare you accuse me of your own failings? Lorana returned. I love Elistan. I reverence him. He is the wisest man I have known, and the gentlest. He is self-sacrificing. His entire life is wrapped up in serving others, but there is only one man I love, only one man I have ever loved. Though now I am beginning to ask myself if perhaps I haven't made a mistake. You said, in that awful place, the Slamori, that I was behaving like a little girl and I had better grow up. Well, I have grown Tannis half-elven. In these past few bitter months, I have seen suffering and death. I have been afraid as I never knew fear existed. I have learned to fight, and I have dealt death to my enemies. All of that hurt me inside until I'm so numb I can't feel the pain any more. But what hurts worse is to see you with clear eyes. I never claimed to be perfect, Lorana. Tanis said quietly. The silver moon and the red had risen, neither of them full yet, but shining brightly enough for Tanis to see tears in Lorana's luminous eyes. He reached out his hands to take her in his arms, but she took a step backwards. You may never claim it, she said scornfully. But you certainly enjoy allowing us to think it. Ignoring his outstretched hands, she grabbed a torch from the wall and walked into the darkness beyond the gate of Torvarden. Tannis watched her leave, watched the light shine on her honey-colored hair, watched her walk, as graceful as the slender aspens of their elven homeland of Qualinesti. Tannis stood for a moment, staring after her, scratching the thick, reddish beard that no elf on Kryn could grow. Pondering Lorana's last statement, he thought, incongruously, of Kityara. He conjured up pictures in his mind of Kit's cropped, curly black hair, her crooked smile, her fiery, impetuous temper, and her strong, sensual body, the body of a trained swordswoman. But he discovered, to his amazement, that now the picture dissolved, pierced by the calm, clear gaze of two slightly slanted, luminous, elven eyes. Thunder rolled out from the mountain. The shaft that moved the huge stone gate began to turn, grinding the door shut. Tanis, watching it shut, decided he would not go in, sealed in a tomb. He smiled, recalling Sturm's words. But there was a shiver in his soul as well. He stood for long moments, staring at the door, feeling its weight settle between him and Lorana. The door sealed shut with a dull boom. The face of the mountain was blank, cold, forbidding. With a sigh, Tanis pulled his cloak about him and started toward the woods. Even sleeping in the snow was better than sleeping underground. He had better get used to it anyway. The plains of dust they would be traveling through to reach Tarsus would probably be choked with snow even this early in the winter. Thinking of the journey as he walked, Tanis looked up into the night sky. It was beautiful, glittering with stars. 
but two gaping black holes marred the beauty. Raceland's missing constellations, holes in the sky, holes in himself. After his fight with Loranar, Tanis was almost glad to start on the journey. All the companions had agreed to go, Tanis knew that none of them felt truly at home among the refugees. Preparations for the journey gave him plenty to think about. He was able to tell himself he didn't care that Lorana avoided him, and at the beginning the journey itself was enjoyable. It seemed as if they were back in the early days of fall instead of the beginning of winter. The sun shone, warming the air. Only Raistlin wore his heaviest cloak. Conversation as the companions walked through the northern part of the plains was light-hearted and merry, filled with teasing and bantering, and reminding each other of the fun they had shared in earlier, happier days in solace. No one spoke of the dark and evil things they had seen in the recent past. It was as if, in the contemplation of a brighter future, they willed these things never to have existed. At night, Elistan explained to them what he was learning of the ancient gods from the discs of Mishikal, which he carried with him. His stories filled their souls with peace and reinforced their faith. Even Tanis, who had spent a lifetime searching for something to believe in, and now that they had found it viewed it with skepticism, felt deep in his soul that he could believe in this, if he believed in anything. He wanted to believe in it. But something held him back, and every time he looked at Lorana he knew what it was. Until he could resolve his own inner turmoil, the raging division between the elven and human side of him, he would never know peace. Only Raistlin did not share in the conversations, the merriment, the pranks and jokes, the campfire talks. The mage spent his days studying his spellbook. If interrupted, he would answer with a snarl. After dinner, of which he ate little, he sat by himself, his eyes on the night sky, staring at the two gaping black holes that were mirrored in the mage's black hourglass-shaped pupils. It was only after several days that spirits began to flag. The sun was obscured by clouds and the wind blew chill from the north. Snow fell so thickly that one day they could not travel at all but were forced to seek shelter in a cave until the blizzard blew itself out. They set double watch at night, though no one could say exactly why, only that they felt a growing sense of threat and menace. River wind stared uneasily at the trail they left in the snow behind them. As Flint said, a blind gully dwarf could follow it. The sense of menace grew. The sense of eyes watching and ears listening. Yet, who could it be? Out here in the plains of dust, where nothing and no one had lived for three hundred years. Chapter 2 Between Master and Dragon Dismal Journey the dragon sighed. 
flexed his huge wings and lifted his ponderous body from the warm, soothing waters of the hot springs. Emerging from a billowing cloud of vapor, he braced himself to step into the chill air. The clear, winter air stung his delicate nostrils and bit into his throat. Swallowing painfully, he firmly resisted the temptation to return to the warm pools and began to climb to the high, rocky ledge above him. The dragon stamped irritably upon rocks slick with ice from the hot spring's vapor, which cooled almost instantly in the freezing air. The stones cracked and broke beneath his clawed feet, bounding and tumbling down into the valley below. Once he slipped, causing him momentarily to lose his balance. Spreading his great wings, he recovered easily, but the incident only served to increase his irritation further. The morning sun lit the mountain peaks, touching the dragon, causing his blue scales to shimmer golden in the clear light, but doing little to warm his blood. The dragon shivered again, stamping his feet upon the chill ground. Winter was not for the blue dragons, nor was traveling this abysmal country. With that thought in mind, as it had been in his mind all the long, bitter night, Sky looked about for his master. He found the dragon high lord standing upon an outcropping of rock, an imposing figure in horned dragon helm and blue dragon scale armor. The high lord, cape whipping in the chill wind, was gazing with intense interest across the great flat plain far below. Come, Lord, return to your tent, and let me return to the hot springs, Sky added mentally. This chill wind cuts to the bone. Why are you out here anyway? Sky might have supposed the High Lord was reconnoitering, planning the disposition of troops, the attacks of the dragon flights. But that was not the case. The occupation of Tarsus had long been planned, planned, in fact, by another Dragon High Lord. For this land was under the command of the Red Dragons. The Blue Dragons and their Dragon High Lords controlled the North. Yet here I stand, in these frigid Southlands, Sky thought irritably, and behind me is an entire flight of Blue Dragons. He turned his head slightly, looking down upon his fellows, beating their wings in the early morning, grateful for the hot spring's warmth which took the chill from their tendons. Fools! Sky thought scornfully. All they're waiting for is a signal from the High Lord to attack, to light the skies and burn the cities with their deadly bolts of lightning are all they care about. Their faith in the Dragon High Lord is implicit, as well it might be, Sky admitted. Their master had led them to victory after victory in the north, and they had not lost one of their number. They leave it to me to ask the questions, because I am the High Lord's mount, because I am closest to the High Lord. Well, so be it. We understand each other, 
the High Lord and I. We have no reason to be in Tarsus. Sky spoke his feelings plainly. He did not fear the High Lord, unlike many of the dragons in Crin, who served their masters with grudging reluctance. Knowing themselves to be true rulers, Sky served his master out of respect and love. The Reds don't want us here, that's certain, and we are not needed. That soft city that beckons you so strangely will fall easily. No army. They swallowed the bait and marched off to the frontier. We are here, because my spies tell me they are here, or will be shortly, was the High Lord's answer. The voice was low, but carried even over the biting wind. They, they, grumbled the dragon, shivering and moving restlessly along the ridge. We leave the war in the north, waste valuable time, lose a fortune in steel, and for what? A handful of itinerant adventurers. The wealth is nothing to me. You know that. I could buy Tarsus if it pleased me. The dragon high lord stroked the dragon's neck with an ice-caked leather glove that creaked with the powerful movements. The war in the north is going well. Lord Areacus did not mind my leaving. Bacaris is a skilled young commander and knows my armies nearly as well as I do, and do not forget, Sky. These are more than vagabonds. These itinerant adventurers killed Verminard. Bah! The man had already dug his own grave. He was obsessed, lost sight of the true purpose. The dragon flicked a glance at his master. The same might be said of others. Obsessed? Yes. Verminard was obsessed and there are those who should be taking that obsession more seriously. He was a cleric. He knew what damage the knowledge of the true gods once spread among the people can do us, answered the High Lord. Now, according to reports, the people have a leader in this human called Elistan, who has become a cleric of Paladin. Worshippers of Mishikal bring true healing back to the land, no, Verminard was far-seeing. There is great danger here. We should recognize and move to stop it, not scoff at it. The dragon snorted derisively. This priest, Elistan, doesn't lead the people. He leads eight hundred wretched humans, former slaves of Verminards in Pax Tharkas. Now they're holed up in Southgate with the mountain dwarves. The dragon settled down on the rock, feeling the morning sun finally bringing a modicum of warmth to his scaled skin. Besides, our spies report they are traveling to Tarsus even as we speak. By tonight, this Elistan will be ours, and that will be that. So much for the servant of Paladin. Elistan is of no use to me. The dragon high lord shrugged without interest. He is not the one I seek. No? Sky raised his head, startled. Who, then? There are three in whom I have particular interest. But I will provide you with descriptions of all of them. The dragon high lord moved closer to Sky, because 
It is to capture them that we participate in the destruction of Tarsus. Tomorrow. Here are those whom we seek. Tanis strode across the frozen plains, his booted footsteps punching noisily through the crust of wind-swept snow. The sun rose at his back, bringing a great deal of light but little warmth. He clutched his cloak about him and glanced about to make certain no one was lagging behind. The companion's line stretched out, single file. They trod in each other's tracks, the heavier, stronger people in front clearing the way for the weaker ones behind them. Tanis led them. Sturm walked beside him, steadfast and faithful as ever, though still upset over leaving behind the hammer of Karis, which had taken on an almost mystical quality for the night. He appeared more careworn and tired than usual, but he never failed to keep step with Tanis. This was not an easy feat, since the knight insisted on traveling in his full antique battle armor, the weight of which forced Sturm's feet deep into the crusted snow. Behind Sturm and Tanis came Caraman, trudging through the snow like a great bear, his arsenal of weapons clanking around him, carrying his armor and his share of supplies, as well as those of his twin brother, Raistlin, on his back. Just watching Caraman made Tanis weary, for the big warrior was not only walking through the deep snow with ease, but was also managing to widen the trail for the others behind him. Of all of the companions the one Tanis might have felt closest to, since they had been raised together as brothers, was the next, Gilthanas. But Gilthanas was an elf lord, younger son of the Speaker of the Sons, ruler of the Qualanasti elves, while Tanis was a bastard and only half-elven, product of a brutal rape by a human warrior, worse. Tanis had dared to find himself attracted, even if in a childish, immature fashion, to Gilthanas's sister, Lorana, and so, far from being friends, Tanis always had the uneasy impression that Gilthanas might well be pleased to see him dead. Riverwind and Gold Moon walked together behind the elf lord, cloaked in their fur-skin capes. The cold was little to the plainsmen. Certainly the cold was nothing compared to the flame in their hearts. They had been married only a little over a month, and the deep love and compassion each felt for the other a self-sacrificing love that had led the world to the discovery of the ancient gods, now achieved greater depths as they discovered new ways to express it. Then came Elistan and Lorana. Elistan and Lorana. Tanis found it odd that, Thinking enviously of the happiness of Riverwind and Gold Moon, his eyes should encounter these two, Elistan and Lorana, always together, always deeply involved in serious conversation. Elistan, cleric of Paladin, resplendent in white robes that gleamed even against the snow. White-bearded, his hair thinning, he was still an imposing figure the kind of man who might well attract a young girl. 
Few men or women could look into Elistan's ice-blue eyes and not feel stirred, awed in the presence of one who had walked the realms of death and found a new and stronger faith. With him walked his faithful assistant, Lorana. The young elf-maid had run away from her home in Qualanesti to follow Tanis in childish infatuation. She had been forced to grow up rapidly. Her eyes opened to the pain and suffering in the world. Knowing that many of the party, Tanis among them, considered her a nuisance, Lorana struggled to prove her worth. With Elistan she found her chance. Daughter to the Speaker of the Sons of the Qualanesti, she had been born and bred to politics. When Elistan was foundering among the rocks of trying to feed and clothe and control eight hundred men, women, and children, it was Lorana who stepped in and eased his burden. She had become indispensable to him, a fact Tanis found difficult to deal with. The half-elf gritted his teeth, letting his glance flick over Lorana to fall on Tika. The barmaid turned adventurous, walked through the snow with Raistlin, having been asked by his brother to stay near the frail mage, since Caramon was needed up front. Neither Tika nor Raistlin seemed happy with this arrangement. The red-robed mage walked along sullenly, his head bowed against the wind. He was often forced to stop, coughing until he nearly fell. At these times Tika would start to put her arm around him hesitantly, her eyes seeing Caraman's worry. But Raistlin always pulled away from her with a snarl. The ancient dwarf came next, bowling along through the snow. The tip of his helm and the tassel from the mane of a griffin were all that were visible above the snow. Tanis had tried to tell him that griffins had no manes, that the tassel was horsehair, but Flint, stoutly maintaining that his hatred of horses stemmed from the fact that they made him sneeze violently, believed none of it. Tanis smiled, shaking his head. Flint had insisted on being at the front of the line. It was only after Caraman had pulled him out of three snowdrifts that Flint agreed, grumbling to walk rear guard. Skipping along beside Flint was Tasselhoff Burfoot, his shrill, piping voice audible to Tanis in the front of the line. Tass was regaling the dwarf with a marvelous tale about the time he found a woolly mammoth. Whatever that was, being held prisoner by two deranged wizards. Tanis sighed. Tass was getting on his nerves. He had already sternly reprimanded the kender for hitting Sturm in the head with a snowball. But he knew it was useless. Kender lived for adventure and new experiences. Tass was enjoying every minute of this dismal journey. Yes, they were all there. They were all still following him. Tanis turned around abruptly, facing south. Why follow me? He asked resentfully. I hardly know where my life is going, yet I'm expected to lead others. I don't have Sturm's driving quest to rid the land of dragons, as did his hero, Humor. I don't have Elistan's holy quest to bring knowledge of the true gods to the people. I don't even have Raceland's burning quest for power. 
Sturm nudged him and pointed ahead. A line of small hills stood on the horizon. If the Kender's map was correct, the city of Tarsus lay just beyond them. Tarsus, and white, winged ships, and spires of glittering white. Chapter 3 Tarsus, the Beautiful Tanis spread out the Kender's map. They had arrived at the foot of the range of barren and treeless hills which, according to the map, must overlook the city of Tarsus. We don't dare climb those in daylight, Sturm said, drawing his scarf down from his mouth. We'd be visible to everything within a hundred miles. No, Tanis agreed. We'll make camp here at the base. I'll climb, though, to get a look at the city. I don't like this. Not one bit, Sturm muttered gloomily. Something's wrong. Do you want me to go with you? Tanis, seeing the weariness in the knight's face, shook his head. You get the others organized. Dressed in a winter traveling cloak of white, he prepared to climb the snow-covered, rock-strewn hills. Ready to start, he felt a cold hand on his arm. He turned and looked into the eyes of the mage. I will come with you, Raceland whispered. Tanis stared at him in astonishment, then glanced up at the hills. The climb would not be an easy one, and he knew the mage's dislike of extreme physical exertion. Raceland saw his glance and understood. My brother will help me, he said, beckoning Caramon, who appeared startled but stood up immediately and came over to stand beside his brother. I would look upon the city of Tarsus the Beautiful. Tanis regarded him uneasily, but Raceland's face was as impassive and cold as the metal it resembled. Very well, the half-elf said, studying Raceland. But you'll show up on the face of that mountain like a bloodstain. Cover yourself with a white robe. The half-elf's sardonic smile was an almost perfect imitation of Raceland's own. Borrow one from Elistan. Tanis, standing on the top of the hill overlooking the legendary seaport city of Tarsus the Beautiful, began to swear softly. Wispy clouds of steam floated from his lips with the hot words. Drawing the hood of his heavy cloak over his head, he stared down into the city in bitter disappointment. Caramon nudged his twin. Raced, he said. What's the matter? I don't understand. Raceland coughed. Your brains are in your sword arm, my brother. The mage whispered caustically, Look upon Tarsus, legendary seaport city. What do you see? Well, Caramon squinted. It's one of the biggest cities I've seen, and there are ships, just like we heard. The white-winged ships... Of Tarsus the Beautiful. Raceland quoted bitterly. 
You look upon the ships, my brother. Do you notice anything peculiar about them? Well, they're not in very good shape. The sails are ragged and... Caraman blinked. Then he gasped. There's no water. Most observant. But the Kender's map... Dated before the cataclysm, Tannis interrupted. Damn it, I should have known. I should have considered this possibility. Tarsus the Beautiful, legendary seaport, now landlocked. And has been for three hundred years, undoubtedly, Raceland whispered. When the fiery mountain fell from the sky, it created seas, as we saw in Zaktsaroth. But it also destroyed them. What do we do with the refugees now, half-elf? I don't know, Tannis snapped irritably. He stared down at the city, then turned away. It's no good standing around here. The sea isn't going to come back just for our benefit. He turned away and walked slowly down the cliff. What will we do? Caraman asked his brother. We can't go back to Southgate. I know something or someone was dogging our footsteps. He glanced around worriedly. I feel eyes watching. Even now. Raceland put his hand through his brother's arm. For a rare instant, the two looked remarkably alike. Light and darkness were not more different than the twins. You are wise to trust your feelings, my brother, Raceland said softly. Great danger and great evil surround us. I have felt it growing on me since the people arrived in Southgate. I tried to warn them. He broke off in a fit of coughing. How do you know? Caraman asked. Raceland shook his head, unable to answer for long moments. Then, when the spasm had passed, he drew a shuddering breath and glanced at his brother irritably. Haven't you learned yet? he said bitterly. I know. Put it at that. I paid for my knowledge in the high towers of sorcery. I paid for it with my body and very nearly my reason. I paid for it with... Raceland stopped, looked at his twin. Caraman was pale and silent as always whenever the testing was mentioned. He started to say something, choked, then cleared his throat. It's just that I don't understand. Raceland sighed and shook his head, withdrawing his arm from his brother's. Then, leaning on his staff, he began to walk down the hill. Nor will you, he murmured. Ever. Three hundred years ago, Tarsus the Beautiful was lord city of the lands of Abenacinia. From here set sail the white winged ships for all the known lands of Crin. Here they returned, bearing all manner of objects, precious and curious, hideous and delicate. The Tarsian marketplace was a thing of wonder. Sailors swaggered the streets, their golden earrings flashing as brightly as their knives. The ships brought exotic peoples from distant lands to sell their wares. Some dressed in gaily colored flowing silks, bedizened with jewels. 
They sold spices and teas, oranges and pearls, and bright-colored birds in cages. Others, dressed in crude skins, sold luxuriant furs from strange animals, as grotesque as those who hunted them. Of course, there were buyers at the Tarsian market as well, almost as strange and exotic and dangerous as the sellers. Wizards dressed in robes of white, red, or black strode their bazaars, searching for rare spell components to make their magic. Distrusted even then, they walked through the crowds, isolated and alone. Few spoke, even to those wearing the white robes, and no one ever cheated them. Clerics, too, sought ingredients for their healing potions, for there were clerics in Crin before the cataclysm. Some worshipped the gods of good, some the gods of neutrality, some the gods of evil. All had great power. Their prayers for good or for evil were answered. And always, walking among all the strange and exotic peoples gathered in the bazaar of Tarsus the Beautiful, were the knights of Solamnia, keeping order, guarding the land, living their disciplined lives in strict observance of the code and the measure. The knights were followers of Paladin and were noted for their pious obedience to the gods. The walled city of Tarsus had its own army and, so it was said, had never fallen to an invading force. The city was ruled under the watchful eyes of the knights by a lord family and had the good fortune to fall to the care of a family possessing sense, sensitivity, and justice. Tarsus became a center of learning. Sages from lands all around came here to share their wisdom. Schools and a great library were established. Temples were built to the gods. Young men and women, eager for knowledge, came to Tarsus to study. The early dragon wars had not affected Tarsus. The huge walled city, its formidable army, its fleets of white-winged ships, and its vigilant knights of Solamnia, daunted even the Queen of Darkness. Before she could consolidate her power and strike the Lord City, Huma drove her dragons from the skies, thus Tarsus prospered and became, during the Age of Might, one of the wealthiest and proudest cities of Crin. And, as with so many other cities in Crin, with its pride grew its conceit. Tarsus began seeking more and more from the gods wealth, power, glory. The people worshipped the king-priest of Istar, who, seeing suffering in the land, demanded of the gods in his arrogance what they had granted Huma in humility. Even the knights of Solamnia, bound by the strict laws of the measure, encased in a religion that had become all ritual with little depth, fell under the sway of the mighty king-priest. Then came the cataclysm, a night of terror, when it rained fire, the ground heaved and cracked as the gods in their righteous anger hurled a mountain of rock down upon Crin, punishing the king-priest of Istar and the people for their pride. The people turned to the knights of Salamnia. You who are righteous, help us, they cried, placate the gods. 
but the knights could do nothing. The fire fell from the heavens, the land split asunder, the sea waters fled, the ships foundered and toppled. The wall of the city crumbled. When the night of horror ended, Tarsus was landlocked. The white-winged ships lay upon the sand like wounded birds, dazed and bleeding. The survivors tried to rebuild their city, expecting any moment to see the knights of Salamnia come marching from their great fortresses in the north, marching from Palanthus, Solanthus, Vingard Keep, Telgard, marching south to Tarsus to help them and protect them once more. But the knights did not come. They had their own troubles, and could not leave Solamnia. Even if they had been able to march, a new sea split the lands of Abyssinia. The dwarves in their mountain kingdom of Torbarden shut their gates, refusing admittance to anyone, and so the mountain passes were blocked. The elves withdrew into Qualanesti, nursing their wounds, blaming humans for the catastrophe. Soon, Tarsus lost all contact with the world to the north. And so, following the cataclysm when it became apparent that the city had been abandoned by the knights, came the day of banishment. The lord of the city was placed in an awkward position. He did not truly believe in the corruption of the knights, but he knew the people needed something or someone to blame. If he sided with the knights, he would lose control of the city, and so he was forced to close his eyes to angry mobs that attacked the few knights remaining in Tarsus. They were driven from the city, or murdered. After a time, order was restored in Tarsus. The lord and his family established a new army, but much was changed. The people believed the ancient gods they had worshipped for so long had turned away from them. They found new gods to worship, even though these new gods rarely answered prayers. All clerical powers that had been present in the land before the cataclysm were lost. Clerics, with false promises and false hopes, proliferated. Charlatan healers walked the land, selling their phony cure-alls. After a time, many of the people drifted away from Tarsus. No longer did sailors walk the marketplace. Elves, dwarves, and other races came. No more. The people remaining in Tarsus liked it this way. They began to fear and mistrust the outside world. Strangers were not encouraged. But Tarsus had been a trade center for so long that those people in the outlying countryside who could still reach Tarsus continued to do so. The outer hub of the city was rebuilt. The inner part, the temples, the schools, the great library, was left in ruins. The bazaar was reopened. Only now it was a market for farmers and a forum for false clerics preaching new religions. Peace settled over the town like a blanket. Former days of glory were as a dream and might not have even been believed, but for the evidence in the center of town.